Welcome, dear listeners, to another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's darker side. Today, we continue unraveling the twisted criminal tale of Peter Demeter. At the end of his trial for the murder of his wife, Christine, he was found guilty and became the most notorious jailbird in Canada. For most criminals, his story would have ended there. But Peter was the industrious sort who wouldn't let a little prison time keep him down. Peter had more murders to plan. From the case files of Heritage Mississauga, this is Mississauga Confidential, Season 3, Episode 14, Night Moves, Part 2, The Three Trials of Peter Demeter. The fallout from the Demeter murder trial wasn't limited to the Demeter's friends, family, and lovers. Peter's lawyers, Joseph Pomerant and Eddie Greenspan, emerged from the loss with vastly different career trajectories. The publicity from the Demeter trial hastened Wunderkind Eddie's ascent to becoming the most renowned defense attorney in Canada. He went on to defend notable clients such as Conrad Black, Garth Drabinsky, Robert Latimer, and Karl-Heinz Schreiber, weaving an illustrious law career into the very fabric of Canadian history in the late 20th century. His boss, Joseph Pomerant, however, was less fortunate. He shuttered his law firm after Eddie and his brother Brian left just after the Demeter trial. Financially struggling, Pomerant was jailed in 1982 for forging the signatures of wealthy clients to pay back the $565,000 he'd embezzled from another client. Well after his conviction, Peter Demeter kept the case in the courts on dual fronts. He brought an appeal to his conviction to the Supreme Court and launched a civil suit against the three insurance companies that refused to pay out on Christine Demeter's $1 million life insurance policy to the man convicted of engineering her murder. Despite presenting new evidence supporting his innocence, including two signed affidavits from witnesses who swore that Laszlo Eper had admitted to killing Christine, Peter Demeter lost both cases. With his legal fees stacking up and his bank accounts draining down, Peter put the Dundas Crescent home where Christine had been murdered on the market. The price was $500,000, a princely sum at the time, especially for a notorious murder house. Nobody bit, and Peter took it off the market. The house would be leased on and off for the next decade, until Peter also engineered its demise. By late 1977, the coverage of the Demeter trial had moved off the front pages and on to the entertainment section. Barbara Emile, book reviewer for Maclean's and co-host of CTV Reports, and her then-husband, playwright George Jonas, wrote the definitive tone on the Demeter murder, titled, By Persons Unknown, The Strange Death of Christine Demeter. The book was a smash, even in the U.S., where it was serialized in America's preeminent scandal rag 
and home to the storied scuttlebutt-slinging page six column, the New York Post. Exhaustively researched and sharply written, the book took an even-handed approach to the case and unearthed more witness evidence in Peter's favor that hadn't come out at the trial. The book went on to win the Edgar Award from the Mystery Writers of America for nonfiction in 1977. Plans were made to bring the book to the silver screen, but the project never got off the ground. Instead, the film-going public was gifted a movie titled I Miss You Hugs and Kisses in 1978 by Canadian schlockmeister Murray Markowitz. Alternately titled Drop Dead, Dearest, the film was a feature-length retelling of the Demeter saga, Sans Real Names or Good Taste. What the film lacked in factual content, it replaced with questionable acting choices and soft-core thrills. A sizable chunk of its million-dollar budget went to black mascara, billowing dresses, and soft-focus lenses, making it a true artifact of late 70s cinema. The cast was headlined by Berlin bombshell Elke Summer, a long, long way from career apex A Shot in the Dark, as Christine Standin, Magdalene Crucian, and Quebec actor Donald Pilon as her husband Charles. The choice of Magdalene as the heroine's name was a big giveaway as to the film's opinion towards Christine. Canadian boxing legend George Chevalo made an appearance as a palooka with a conscience, and Academy Award-winning composer Howard Shore supplied the jazzy score, his first, setting the stage for an auspicious career that went on to include Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. I Miss You Hugs and Kisses was notorious in the UK as one of the so-called Video Nasties, a group of 72 films released on home video that were censored or banned outright by the British Board of Film Classification for shocking content. It put the film in the company of such cinematic gems as Cannibal Holocaust and Night of the Bloody Apes. Scenes that were too intense for British audiences included shots of Magdalene being clubbed in the head and a recreation of Henry David Williams' sexual assault. While Brits might have blanched at the risque film, I Missed You Hugs and Kisses did boffo box office in Toronto theatres, reinforcing the public's thirst for all things Demeter. No Hollywood hack, however, could have dreamed up the twists and turns that Peter Demeter's saga would take in the decade to come. The 1980s began with the relatively mundane. Peter was moved from the maximum security confines of Millhaven Penitentiary to Warkworth, a medium security prison. The new digs also granted him new freedoms, and in June 1982, he was granted day parole. He made the most of his time, spending his days in Toronto, then driving 100 kilometers back to Warkworth to sleep for the night. Newspaper society columns detailed his new role as a bon vivant and man about town. He was a celebrity, and engineering his wife's murder seemed to be a celebrity's eccentricity, a funny personality trait, like demanding only the green M&Ms 
or keeping a pet chimp. In a move that was either right on the nose or dripping with irony, Peter was invited to give a guest lecture on contemporary morals to a philosophy class at Trent University. A similar invitation to speak before a civics class at a local high school was nixed when a concerned parent caught wind of it. In July 1983, Peter was given weekday parole at a Peterborough halfway house, with only weekends spent in prison. The promise of full parole was just a year away, if he could sue the insurance companies into paying out Christine's life insurance policy, now totaling $3 million with interest, he'd be flush with cash with his prison time behind him. For Peter, things were looking up. And then, the wheel of fortune turned again. On the night of August 15, 1983, almost ten years after Christine was murdered, the Dundas Crescent home in which she was found dead went up in flames. The cause was thought to be faulty wiring. To save the century-old home from destruction, it was quickly designated as an historic property, but within the next ten days, the house was set on fire twice more and had to be demolished. In the third fire, a gas can found near the house pointed conclusively to arson. For Peel police, where there was smoke, there was fire. Or in this case, where there was fire, there was conspiracy to kidnap and murder. The demise of the Demeter house was just the spark that would put Peter Demeter behind bars for good. On the evening of October 20th, 1983, Peter was dining at Summer's Restaurant in the Beaches. His dining companions were the head of a modeling agency and his wife, and a statuesque blonde named Sonia. Peter polished off an eight-ounce steak, his last meal as a free man. After dinner, he and Sonia strolled through the autumn night back to his car. They exchanged phone numbers and kissed goodnight. Then, Peel police detectives stepped in and placed Peter under arrest. Peter wasn't just charged with burning down his Mississauga home, but with counseling two men, Tony Preston and Mike Lane, to kidnap and murder his cousin, Stuart Demeter. The intended victim was one of the poor and fortunate souls to share a family tree with Peter. The 19-year-old York University student was the son of Stephen and Marjorie Demeter, the legal guardians of Peter and Christine's daughter, Andrea. The second murder trial of Peter Demeter was a case of new bottle, old wine. There were some eerie echoes of the first trial, and the new details were just as lurid and bizarre as the first time around. The trial began on a familiar note, with the venue moving out of Peel County, this time to Peterborough. Another familiar element from the first trial was the presence of a female companion in the courtroom offering Peter moral support. This time his cheerleader was a 25-year-old Trent University student and single mother named Lisa Ross, Peter's new fiancée. An unfamiliar element of the second trial 
was a voice not heard in the first Demeter trial, that of Peter Demeter himself. By the time the preliminary trial rolled around in November 1984, Peter's lawyer, Toby Bellman, had dropped him as a client, and Peter was representing himself. A week before the trial was set to begin, Peter swallowed a handful of pills in his cell at Metro West Detention Center and chased it with a bottle of shampoo. Jail guards were roused by the thud of Peter falling to the ground. When they found him, he wasn't breathing. Firefighters arrived on the scene and were able to resuscitate him. He was taken to hospital to recover. On July 15, 1985, a week after his suicide attempt, the trial began as planned with a stooped and weary-looking Peter Demeter present as both defendant and counsel. While investigating the arson at the Demeter home, Peel police were able to connect their firebug, Tony Preston, with Peter Demeter. Once again, Peter's loose lips sank his ship. Peter's other cohort, bodybuilder and ex-con Mike Lane, had been working with Peel police from the get-go. The Sting, named Operation Dragon, saw Lane wear police wire and record conversations with Peter, where he explicitly outlined his plan to kidnap Stuart Demeter, shoot him, and remove his teeth to prevent identification of the body. Lane's role was to lure young Stuart to a Peterborough Holiday Inn with the promise of a part-time job. Unsuspecting Stuart would be pulled into a waiting van with Peter himself inside, armed with a pistol and silencer. He gets in. Bang. Finished. We do the job. We package him, Peter was heard saying on the police videotape. A series of telephone calls to Stuart's parents would then squeeze ransom money for his son's safe return. Peel police arrested Peter outside Summer's restaurant before the plot could be carried out. Peter's explanation for the highly incriminating conversations amounted to, we were rehearsing a play. At least, it was a plausible, if highly improbable, excuse. Peter claimed he was helping Mike Lane run lines for an audition for the film Martin's Day, a Richard Harris-James Coburn vehicle about the kidnapping of a 12-year-old boy by an escaped convict. The low-budget romp was filming in Peterborough at the time. The mountain of evidence against Peter didn't end there. Tony Preston also corroborated the murder-kidnap plot. After running into Peter at a restaurant, Preston testified that Peter had given him $8,000 to burn down the Dundas Crescent home and offered him another $10,000 to kidnap and murder Stuart Demeter. Preston made good with the arson job but balked at murder, and Peter moved on to Mike Lane. Police also found a ransom note that Peter had typewritten, threatening, among other things, to mail Stuart's severed testicles to his parents. As for motive, Stephen Demeter, Stuart's father, testified that his relationship with his cousin Peter had soured when Peter convinced him to launch the lawsuit to collect Christine's life insurance payout on Andrea's behalf. 
The lawsuit had laid an egg, and Stephen was on the hook for $60,000 in legal fees. An equally compelling motive for the kidnapping and murder of Stuart Demeter was personal. Peter liked to boast to the newspapers about his close relationship with his beloved daughter, Andrea. The truth was, he'd been estranged from her for years. For a man who couldn't stand to have things taken away from him, he blamed Stephen, Marjorie, and Stuart Demeter for stealing his daughter's affections away from him. On the night of July 2nd, 1985, the jury deliberated for six and a half hours before finding Peter Demeter guilty. He was given two concurrent life sentences on top of the life sentence he would continue to serve out after his parole was revoked for the first trial. When it comes to bad habits, some people smoke and some people bite their nails. Conspiring to kidnap for revenge and profit was the bad habit Peter just couldn't shake, especially when it came to the children of his perceived enemies. On August 17, 1985, before the ink was even dry on his most recent conviction, Peter was charged yet again, this time for conspiring to kidnap Eliza Bellman, the 16-year-old daughter of Toby Bellman, who'd worked as Demeter's lawyer for four years. Ms. Bellman had arranged the sale of the Dundas Crescent property and represented Demeter early in his previous criminal trial. Bellman claimed Peter owed her $45,000 in unpaid legal services and was able to freeze some of his assets in order to get paid. Peter's co-conspirators for this latest caper were his fiancée, Lisa Ross, and a former cellmate at Metro West Detention Center named Peter Winstanley. With Ross acting as go-between, when Stanley was offered $25,000 to kidnap young Eliza with a $5,000 option to murder the girl if the plot went south. A ransom of $388,750 and the thawing of Peter's assets would be the price for her safe return. With the ransom paid, Ross and Wynne Stanley would somehow spring Peter from prison and the three outlaws would ride off into the sunset. Like Peter's previous attempts at kidnapping and murder, the plan was long on ambition and short on logic. Once again, Peter's poor choice of criminal confederates doomed him from the start. Wynne Stanley went straight to Bellman and spilled the plot to her. Bellman called in the police, and incriminating conversations between Peter, Wynne Stanley, and Ross were videotaped and presented as evidence at the trial. When Wynne Stanley skipped town before the trial, Crown prosecutors scrambled to cut a deal with Ross. Her charges were dropped in exchange for her testimony against Peter. At the trial, Ross recounted their toxic relationship in excruciating detail. She'd met Peter in October 1983 while studying at Trent University. Peter had noticed the pretty biology student around their Peterborough neighborhood and weaseled her telephone number from a neighbor. He cold-called her at midnight and charmed his way into a face-to-face -face meeting. He showed up the next day, 
with a bag full of Laura Secord candies for her and her daughter. As a single mother, Lisa felt lonely and out of step with her classmates. She was intrigued and flattered by the attention from the older distinguished gentleman. Within a week of their first date, Peter was arrested for the Stuart Demeter kidnap plot and sent to Metro West Detention Center. Separation by incarceration only inflamed Ross's attraction to Peter. She swallowed his sob story of persecution at the hands of Peel police, and her attraction became an obsession. She was in his thrall, and Peter exploited his hold on her by sending her from Peterborough to Toronto on daily errands for him. In her last year of study, she quit school to become Peter's full-time Girl Friday. Eventually, when Peter's demands turned criminal, she couldn't say no. I did it because Peter Demeter asked me to, she testified at the trial. I was in love with him. He sort of ordered it. When he asked you to do something, you felt you had to do it. Taking the stand in his own defense, the courtroom saw a side of Peter that hadn't been seen in a while. They'd seen Peter the snake, Peter the vampire, Peter the weasel. On the stand, they saw Peter the actor, Peter the empresario, Peter the showman. In his testimony, he narrated the picaresque story of his life in glorious technicolor, breathtaking cinemascope, and stereophonic sound. It was a frenetic montage careening from sepia-toned shots of his childhood in Budapest to low-angled shots of his rise to wealth and power, to triumphant aerial shots of Peter in a sports car with tall blonde women seated next to him. The story had esoteric details for the arthouse crowd, some comedy and sex for the masses, and even a bit with the dog. In the end, defending his innocence was ancillary to having the spotlight on Peter, 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 with a legally obligated audience of jurors hanging on his every word. His life was a movie filmed in real time, written, directed, starring, and produced by Peter himself. But, like many megalomaniacal auteurs, he was obsessed with control and too close to the material. In his testimony, as in his life, what he really needed was a good editor. On June 24, 1988, Peter was found guilty for a third time, and given another life sentence. In his sentencing, Justice John O'Driscoll made his thoughts about Peter Demeter crystal clear. I do not know if you are inherently evil, but you ooze evil out of every pore and contaminate everyone around you. At this point, there were few people who would disagree with him. From his prison cell, Peter Demeter has seen the world outside pass him by. The fall of the Iron Curtain, the birth of the Internet, cell phones, 9-11, a revolving door of prime ministers, endless cycles of stock booms and busts, and a global pandemic. These days, the name Peter Demeter still pops up in the newspapers from time to time, usually related to a parole request that is summarily denied. These small news items stoke the cozy fires of nostalgia for criminal cases gone by. For others, however, 
The scars of Peter Demeter's crimes are deep, lasting, and present. Andrea Demeter, the daughter of Christine and Peter Demeter, was three years old when her mother was murdered just meters away from her in the garage of her house. That night, Andrea was whisked away from the only home she'd known and placed in the care of Stephen and Marjorie Demeter. For the next few years, she grew up believing they were her father and mother. When she was nine, she discovered her true parentage in the schoolyard. A classmate showed her a copy of By Persons Unknown, and in it, the photo of her dead mother lying face down in the garage of her now-forgotten Mississauga home. Andrea has been a survivor of unfathomable tragedy and the trauma that ensued. She has survived the nightmare she was given after visiting a strange man in prison, a man who told her that she needed to be a lady, a man who turned out to be her father. As an adult, she survived being declared an unfit mother and having her own daughter placed in foster care after Andrea had driven drunk with her in the car. Andrea survived the fight against alcohol addiction, gotten sober, and gotten her kids back. Today, she is a counselor for other survivors suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. In ancient Greek mythology, the story of the goddess Demeter is a story of tragedy, struggle, and eventually, renewal. We keep telling ourselves these stories because they speak a truth that's truer than the factual truth. There's truth in the greed and destructiveness of men. There's truth in the constant, imperfect struggle for justice. And there's truth in hope. The hope that, after our struggles are over and behind us, we will step out from the darkness and into the warmth of the sun. End title. Roll credits. And so we close the file on another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's darker side. Want more tales of the city's darker side? We and Mississauga Confidential HQ are pleased to announce the publication of the Mississauga Confidential book. It contains 24 shocking tales of true crime, including stories not included in the podcast, as well as photos from each case. Beginning in December 2022, you can bag your own copy of the Mississauga Confidential book through the Heritage Mississauga website at heritagemississauga.com. This podcast is written by Brian Ho and Nicole Mayer. Research by Brian Ho and Nicole Mayer. Video content produced by Brian Ho, Nicole Mayer, and Ryan Parks. Mississauga Confidential is a Heritage Mississauga production. Heritage Mississauga is a not-for-profit organization dedicated to researching, recording, and celebrating the history of the city of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Your support helps create programming just like this. For more information about Heritage Mississauga and to become a member, please visit heritagemississauga.com and follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Until next time, dear listener, 
This is Mississauga Confidential, signing off.